Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll talk about a new mosquito trap that may help stop the spread of viruses like Zika and dengue. We've been doing research in Ecuador in partnership with the local government to start to understand the distribution of the disease, the true burden of disease, and understanding social risk factors and climate risk factors. Plus, an overview of sleep disorders and their screening process. If you treat a sleep disorder, Many of the other comorbidities uh, also respond positively, even if those are not treated. And a look at the effects of rising opioid abuse. And even prescribed medications, you know, the higher the dose, the more likely it is to cause toxicity or be a poison. We'll have all that and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, what you need to know about sleep disorders and a look at the effects of rising opioid abuse. But first, we'll discover a low-tech way to fight the mosquitoes spreading dengue and Zika. Zika, dengue, chikungunya, they're all names we've been hearing a lot about of late. These are diseases that are spread by the mosquito, much like malaria, and they're wreaking havoc in many parts of the world, now including the United States. Here to bring us up to date on her role in the fight against these mosquito-borne diseases and some possible breakthroughs is Dr. Anna Stewart Ibarra. She's from the Center for Global Health and Translational Science at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thanks so, so much for coming in, Dr. Ibarra. Thank you, Linda. Good morning. So the last time you were with us, Anna, you, you were telling us about, you brought us up to date on the work you've been doing in Ecuador, mm -hmm. specifically with the dengue. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of do a little review. Help us first understand what is dengue, mm -hmm. dengue so fever. Dengue fever is a disease caused by four related viruses of dengue fever virus. And these viruses are passed to people by primarily the Aedes aegypti mosquito, secondarily also by the Aedes albopictus mosquito. Um, and so when the mosquito is infected with the virus, if it bites someone, it then passes that per the virus to that person. The virus replicates inside the person. A few days later, they'll show a range of febrile symptoms, so fever, joint pain, aches. Um, and in worst cases, uh, you could even have some hemorrhage or shock. And then after a period of, let's say, 10 days or so, the virus then passes through your system and you recover generally. So basically, what is the, the, you know, you're describing what I consider the morbidity, the kinds of symptoms, mm -hmm. the kinds of things that take place with dengue. But is there a high mortality rate with, deng with dengue? So the mortality rate with dengue really depends on access to medical care and doctors are well-trained. So in parts of the world, we have good access to medical care. Doctors who are familiar with how to manage dengue cases, the mortality rates are quite low. Um, 
in places where it's a new disease, where it's emerging, maybe the physicians are not as familiar with the disease, you have a higher risk of, of mortality. But what's the treatment for something like dengue? Mm. Isn't it pretty much just a symptomatic? They just treat yeah. the symptoms? So there's no specific, there's no vaccine, there's no medicine you can take to make it go away. But if you have physicians who are well-trained, they can manage the patient by providing appropriate fluids, rehydration, monitoring the vital signs of the patient to avoid going into shock, pretty much. Isn't there some danger, though, if you get bitten by um, a mosquito that's carrying different varieties of mm. the dengue mm -hmm. that each time if you were to get, in other words, the first time you're bitten, you're th then you're immune to that type. But if you get bitten a second time with a mm -hmm. new type, since yeah. there are several viruses involved here, mm -hmm. the, the symptoms become worse and yeah. the so potential for death is greater? So generally during your first infection, um, well, oftentimes you may be totally asymptomatic. So you may have no symptoms. You wouldn't even know you had the disease. But some people show sort of these mild kind of aches and joints and pains and fever. Like flu. Yeah, flu-like symptoms, exactly. When you're ex exposed then to that a second strain of the virus, because we have all four strains that are circulating in the same regions in areas in the tropics especially where the disease is common, during that second infection, you're much more likely to have a severe infection, um, which could lead to hospitalization. Actually, I wanted to follow up on another point of yours. We used to think that when you're exposed to one of these strains of the virus, you would then have lifelong immunity. But evidence now is coming out to show that that's not the case. Oh, okay. And so that really changes the, yeah. our, our understanding of dengue. And this is, these are brand new studies that are starting to show that, that you know, actually the immunity may decline over time. That's very interesting. So you mentioned, I was going to ask you, where is it most prevalent? And you said tropics. So mm -hmm. give us a feeling for, is it mostly the southern hemisphere? Sure. So dengue is actually one of the most widely distributed mosquito-borne uh, viral disease in the world. So pretty much from the subtropics through the tropics. So, you know, in the U.S., that includes the southern part of the U.S., but in Latin America and the Caribbean, practically almost every country, you know, I think some more than 44 countries and territories have reported dengue. And, and now, it's the same throughout Asia and countries in Africa. And So now it's actually in the United States. It's been noted in mm -hmm. Florida, places like Texas as well. Yeah, correct. So dengue was historically in the U.S. Actually, there were outbreaks of dengue reported in Philadelphia in the 1700s oh, really? with mosquito control technologies, really effective campaigns to eradicate malaria and yellow fever in the U.S. We also got rid of dengue, but it has since come back in into the southern part of the U.S., including in Florida and since 2009. Same, that same mosquito, the Aedes aegypti, and you said another mm -hmm. type as well, the, that mosquito is also responsible for uh, disseminating Zika. Correct, yeah. So the Aedes aegypti mosquito and the Aedes albopictus, so these are two species in the same basically group Family. of mosquitoes, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're both, they both transmit dengue fever. They also transmit Zika. They also transmit chikungunya, which All was three. a major epidemic last year, also Japanese encephalitis and, and dengue, uh, sorry, and... Uh, yellow fever as well for, for the Aedes aegypti mosquito. So this mosquito is, is, is a it's really a nasty <laughs> a mosquito. <real> villain. <laughs> it's very good at transmitting viruses. Very interesting. So obviously um, you have been doing some very crucial research mm. and um, your role currently, tell me about that. You're working mm -hmm. in Ecuador right now. What are you doing exactly there? Mm -hmm. So for the last 10 years, uh, we've been doing research in Ecuador in partnership with the local government to start to understand the distribution of the disease, the true burden of disease, and understanding social risk factors and climate risk factors so that we can get a better handle on how, how to manage, how to intervene to prevent, predict and prevent epidemics. 
So since the end of 2012, with Upstate, we uh, began developing a dengue surveillance study, which means that we're working with the Ministry of Health to improve diagnostics, to be able to detect cases earlier, and to go out in the community and do active searching for more cases to understand the true burden of disease in the population, and then to also look for other risk factors, as you mentioned, like conditions of the home, nutritional risk factors, um, presence of the mosquito in the household. And this study has now been expanded, of course, to include chikungunya and Zika. So what exactly are you finding? I mean, it seems to me that um, without a vaccine, and I know they're Mm fast-tracking dengue and Zika vaccines, obviously mosquito control is the name of the game. Mm -hmm. But in those tropical countries, or that tropical type of environment, I would think it would be near to impossible to really eradicate Mm. the mosquito. And so I guess, I mean, are things like screens, I mean, you're talking about the different factors that Mm -hmm. you're analyzing. Mm -hmm. So what has come out of what you found, I guess, Mm -hmm. in terms of the kinds of interventions Yeah, so from some of the prior studies we did, housing conditions were definitely an important risk factor. So anything you can do to reduce contact with the infectious mosquito, air conditioning, screens on your windows and doors. Um, You know, we have other partners in countries working with actually mosquito impregnated curtains to use on windows. Uh, since the mosquito bites during the day, a mosquito net is not as useful for dengue prevention, so right? So it's not just sleeping under a net. Right, which is typically what we use for malaria. A, mos- a mosquito net is useful if you have a kid in the house, for example, who's home during the day who's sick with dengue, right? So you at- the kid would sleep under the mosquito or net. Or an infant, perhaps, sure. who naps. definitely. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen with Dr. Anna Stewart Ibarra, global health researcher, and we're talking about dengue fever and other mosquito-borne diseases. So, yes, continue what you were saying about this whole idea of trying to find out more information and in finding it out, making recommendations through the Ministry of Health, and in this case, Ecuador. Where did, how did Ecuador become a focus mm-hmm. for your work? Mm-hmm. So I actually, I'm Ecuadorian and U.S. citizen, so I have the, the pleasure of having family in both countries, oh, which wow. is part of my personal passion to, yes. to help the people. Uh, but beyond that, some of my early mentors were also from Ecuador, and so about 10 years ago, we started developing these projects, and we saw that there was just so much support and openness from our government partners and from my colleagues in Ecuador to develop this research, which is the main reason we keep working there, because of our close partnerships and just the support. And I think they really have shown us over the years that this is such an important issue for people living in, in dengue and Zika endemic areas, and they've... That's so, created this really strong partnership over the years. And there's such a ramification because, mm-hmm. I mean, what you find in that environment mm-hmm. obviously has a great application throughout sure. the world. Exactly, yeah. So, say so over the last 10 years, I think more and more of the public eye, people have begun to realize, you know, the importance of studying these diseases. And they've really emerged as probably one of the greatest, let's say, public health challenges today. And it wasn't the case 10 years ago, I would say. And so we've, we've been able to you, you, ride that wave also of, expanding our research footprint. Absolutely. And and the thing that strikes me right now is that with Zika mm-hmm. being in the news so much because of the birth defects associated mm-hmm. with that early, mm-hmm. you know, the first trimester or actually throughout pregnancy mm-hmm. and the potential developmental problems that could also be consequences mm-hmm. of having Zika, it's even more, I think, in the yeah. public eye right now of mm-hmm. uh, uh, trying to figure out ways to control or mm-hmm. fight this this problem. So tell me, it seems to me, you make these recommendations, obviously, you know, hopefully you'll be making more 
Well, have you found, I guess the first question would be, have you found reduction in the incidence or prevalence of infections from any of these diseases by virtue of any interventions that you've recommended? Uh, I would say to date, we're in the process of really pr gathering the data to provide the evidence to the Ministry of Health to then be able to collaboratively design interventions. So okay, we're at so the point you're still of still collecting data. Yeah, and we're also developing early warning systems and predictions. And so we now need to go back to our partners and say, is this useful for you? Mm -hmm. You know, what can you do with this kind of information? So right now we're in the process of really documenting the true burden of disease for the first time. Well, that's going to be The next step would be, as you mentioned, to develop these intervention studies. So, so right now you're doing both Zika and dengue. Yeah, correct. We were fortunate to get support from the National Science Foundation through the NSF Zika Rapid Grant. And so last year, I'm actually really impressed with NSF that they were one of the few, I think, federal agencies to move quickly. And so by last May, we already had been awarded a grant to begin doing Zika studies in Ecuador, which we're building on our ongoing dengue studies. So that helped us to ramp up quickly. And would one have rep uh, basically has um, a good foundation for the other? In other words, if you've yeah. certain findings, certain things that you've determined with dengue would also then be true for Zika? Some of the health, uh, sorry, the risk factors would certainly be true because the vector is the same. Right. Uh, but the, 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 the advantages, our study designs are similar, and because we're working in areas where both diseases are transmitted, we're now going back and we're able to test all of our samples for dengue, Zika, and chikungunya since the since basically the beginning of 2014 going forward. And so we've been able to build on this research platform, as, as we like to think of it. Wow. Well, one of the things that was fascinating to me when you came the last time was to talk to us a little bit about what I thought was a brilliant kind of low-tech approach to mm. mosquito control. Mm -hmm. Give us that background. What was that? Yeah, so this is a project that began with a, through a collaboration with Dr. David Larson at Syracuse University and Dr. Marco Nera, who's an invest, a professor and investigator at the Catholic University in Quito. And together we've designed this a mosquito control device um, based on the idea that mosquitoes, all mosquitoes feed on sugar. Actually, especially the male mosquitoes feed on sugar. And so if you can get the mosquitoes to come and feed on a surface that has sugar, you know, then you could lace the sugar with a toxin and that would kill the mosquito. So this has been shown... Sounds amazingly simple <laughs> and brilliant and very low-tech. Yeah, very low-tech. So this is there's sort of a whole field of research called attractive toxic sugar baits. And this has been shown by researchers in, in Florida, and they've sprayed sugar on large areas of vegetation, which isn't exactly practical for the Aedes aegypti mosquito since this is an indoor sort of... It, like lives in the house, right? Oh, so, I didn't know that. So they do really, they, they live in the house. Oh, yeah, definitely. When we do collections in the field, we find 90% of the mosquitoes we collect inside the house, not outside. Very So they live inside the house, they feed on humans, and they breed in standing water in and around the home. So they're really perfectly adapted to the human urban environment. Wow. Which makes them formidable to be able to, Very formidable. to eradicate. Yeah. So our so device, what, yeah, yeah, so we've um, basically create like a, a surface where we can put this mixture of sugar and toxin and create a small uh, low-cost device that would be in the household, attract the mosquitoes to come and feed on it. The color and shape and pattern also use visual cues that attract the Aedes aegypti mosquito. And we've been testing this year different chemical attractants that simulate CO2. So when mammals or people breathe out, we breathe you know, CO2, which That's is what an attractant. it attracts the mosquitoes. So now we're testing other chemicals that stimulate that same response in the mosquito to lure them to be able to feed on this device and then and then die. So at what point are you in the studies? 
So we built what we call these semi, uh, these experimental huts, so simulated houses in, in Acuroy Machala. And we've spent the last year testing the devices inside these semi-experimental huts, and we're continuing those studies right now. So no conclusions at this point? The conclusions from the lab studies are very promising. They show that they're incredibly effective. Right now, we're still working on fine-tuning the semi-field trial so that then we can move to a community intervention. And the truth be told, it's got to be somewhat low cost because it's yeah. really low tech. Definitely. And if it has high efficacy, it could really do a, go a long way because I think what we've been le left with, and, and I know in this country right now with Zika, is mm -hmm. eradicating standing water but basically spraying large mm -hmm. communities. And there's some concern as to whether there's toxicity intrinsic in the spraying to yeah. humans. Yeah, it's definitely a concern all across the world where people are spraying. This would be a device that we estimate that would cost less than a dollar and could be used in a broad range of settings, in the household, in the deployed warfighter setting, or... Anywhere. You have to come back and tell us what the findings are at some point. <laughs> Thank you so much. My guest has been Dr. Anna Stewart-Ibarra from the Center for Global Health and Translational Science at Upstate Medical University with so much information and great information. I'm so glad you're out there fighting for us <laughs> against this, this 80s Egypti. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about sleep disorders. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, it's often been said that a good night's sleep is the best tonic for all that ails you, but for many people, that's an elusive goal. Sleep disorders are quite prevalent worldwide, and determining the nature of the disrupted sleep is essential in developing an appropriate treatment plan. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. Karen Klingman. She's an associate professor of nursing at Upstate Medical University who specializes in sleep disorder screening. Welcome, Dr. Klingman. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having it's me. It's a fascinating topic, and I think a lot of people, you know, I think I've read articles and seen things over the years of how we're all functioning on a lot less sleep than we need, but why is appropriate sleep so important to maintain overall good health? Well, sleep is right up there in one of the top three pillars. There's nutrition, exercise, and sleep, and all three are really necessary to maintain health. Um, when you're asleep, your um, body recharges itself, uh, and uh, what they've shown is that lack of uh, enough sleep can impair your ability to function. It also impacts your body's ability to do things like control blood pressure. Um, it, there's an associated risk of increased um, cardiac disease, obesity, depression, all those kinds of things. So we don't. When you say it's a time to restore, is there actually repair of cell on a cellular level going on? Do we know, do we really understand well, what all, sleep does? All that's still being studied um, uh, by basic scientists. Sleep 
science as a, a particular science is relatively new. But what we do know most about sleep is what happens if you don't get appropriate sleep. And those are all the things I just mentioned. Yeah, very interesting. I know there's a lot of possible causes for why people have sleep disorders, but I'm curious as to when does a possible sleep disturbance become a true disorder? Well, that really depends on the nature of the disturbance. Um, initially, um, the thought for sleep scientists was your sleep disruption was a disorder if it in interfered with your daytime functioning. However, there is sort of the preliminary or, or prodromal of point of sleep disorders where you don't really know you have an issue and your body is still suffering. And Another issue with sleep disturbances is people get used to running on not enough sleep, so they don't really realize um, the damaging effects that are occurring. So in, in kind of preparing for this, I kind of came across the fact that typically we talk about six core sleep disorders or main sleep disorders. I thought we'd just do a quick overview of what those are. Sure. Um, well, the one that most people are probably most familiar with is insomnia. And uh, insomnia is one of those words that's used as a symptom and also a disorder, so it can be confusing. But an insomnia disorder has to do with inability to initiate or maintain sleep once you're in bed. And that's very widespread. That can be acute. It can also be chronic. And a lot of times people go back and forth between acute insomnia and what we call chronic insomnia disorder. Um, so that, um, that's one of the disorder categories. Another disorder category is sleep-disordered breathing, and the most common one that people are familiar with is obstructive sleep apnea. This one has been studied quite a bit. Um, that's where uh, periodically uh, while you're in bed or asleep, you, you wake up because uh, your body gets deprived of oxygen. And people use CPAP for that. Probably a lot of listeners are familiar with, with that particular therapy. And that basically pressurizes or keeps the oxygen coming so that you're not right. you're not forced to wake up. Right, it keeps the back of your throat open. And the, the real bad part about obstructive sleep apnea is every time you wake up, that fight-or-flight response gets initiated and... Um, it's harder to fall it's back. Harder to fall back asleep, and that does damage on your endocrine system and can lead to things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Um, next down the road is circadian rhythm disruptions. Uh, that's a real big umbrella term. Those are, you can think of things like jet lag and shift work disorder, but that's where your um, sleep cycle is out of sync with your body's natural um, cycling of things like melatonin. Um, Before you go on, yes, help us understand a little bit more about what this circadian rhythm is, because I know that a lot of people, well, I know that with infants, for example, when they first come into the world, they're all turned around. We yeah. say that, you know, their day is night, their night is day. So just help us, give us a little thumbnail of what is the circadian rhythm and how does it control our sleep? The circadian rhythm is the cycling of your body's drive to sleep. So, uh, and it's influenced by a lot of things that's also still being studied. Um, one way to sense that is by looking at the melatonin level. Uh, um, that's a, um, 
an, an indicator? An indicator, yeah. And that's naturally occurring melatonin within our body. Yeah, so some people try to influence their body's drive to sleep by taking melatonin, and that has a varied effect. But so uh, your body has a natural cycle that's a little over 12 hours long of wanting to be asleep and wanting to be awake. And then the longer you're awake, um, the, your drive to want to fall asleep is influenced by how the drive um, to need to sleep in, is um, coupled with your, the time you've been awake. So basically, this is an, a naturally occurring system that right. basically comes with being human right. to sleep some amount of time and to be awake some amount of time. And if there's a disruption in this system, it throws everything off. Right, and it's, a lot of it's... Um, keyed to the amount of daylight that you're exposed to. There have been some studies where they put people in sort of caves underground to look at your natural sleep cycle. And it, they know it's slightly longer than the daylight cycle uh, because people in those situations end up sleeping differently than the daylight cycle. But it basically is basically the way we're wired. It is, yeah. Okay, go on. You were So that would have been the third. The third so one. disruptions in that. There's restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement disorder where um, while you're asleep, your limbs just um, kick around, and they can that can wake you up without you realizing it. So again, your sleep is, is disrupted and fractured. So um, that can have the similar effect as obstructive sleep apnea. Um, next is narcolepsy, which is a hypersomnia disorder where uh, you just periodically cannot stay awake. You fall right asleep. You go into REM sleep and start having dreams. So and that's even during the daytime. During the daytime. If you sit down for a few minutes, you might fall into a sleep pattern. Right, or sometimes if you have a strong emotion or, or uh, laugh, you might fall over. Um, so it's it's not only a sleep disorder, but it's dangerous if you happen to fall asleep while you're standing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with sleep expert Dr. Karen Klingman. We're talking about screening for sleep disorders. We're going to get to the screening, but finish your last. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Is it number five or six? Uh, the now? last one is yeah. just parasomnias, which are things like sleep, sleepwalking, sleep eating, nightmares, that kind of thing. Overall, are there varied causes for all of these different disorders? I don't think we really know what the causes are. Um, some, some of it's genetic, some of it's um, lifestyle. Um, you can kick yourself into a sleep disorder by making um, poor choices with your lifestyle, but I, nobody really knows the causes. So that basically treatment, though, is very crucial in terms of knowing what the particular disorder is, though. Right. There are uh, standardized treatments associated with each of these six sleep disorders, along with many of the others. There's a whole book that outlines a whole bunch of different sleep disorders. So one last thing along those lines is then who is most at risk? I mean, you've said, are we talking adults at this point for the most part, or is it change as we age? Are we more likely to develop one of these sleep disorders as we get older? Um, well, I, my specialty is with adults, and I, I'm not um, well-versed on pediatric sleep disorders. But for adults, everybody's at risk. If you randomly went around and sampled the adults that you met on the street, probably anywhere uh, from 30 to 50% of the individuals would have some sort of a sleep disorder. So most commonly, insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea. And whether it's clinically relevant and needs to be treated, um, that's up to them and their provider. But it is highly prevalent. And people walk around with sleep disorders without knowing it. Without actually without knowing it. Without actually knowing it, yeah. So you were just saying that, you know, 
it's up to them and their provider. I think right. the big question here is, how are these identified when they're identified? How are they best identified and who should be identifying them? Right. Well, that's a that's another good question that's, that can be studied. I think a lot of it depends on the comfort level of the provider. Um, a lot of primary provider, care providers do ask in their patients about their sleep, but they also have busy practices and have a lot of other things to ask their patients about. The, the best way to get your get attention for your sleep disorder is for you to bring up with your provider uh, issues about your sleep. We know that um, there's a much more likelihood of being diagnosed with a sleep disorder if you tell your doctor you're having issues with your sleep, but you may not know it. And so uh, my uh, big area of interest is routinely screening for sleep disorders even without um, the patient bringing it up. And it's and you are currently working on some kind of a very quick um, tool of some kind that primary care providers can use? Yes. Yeah, so we have a, a sleep disorders screening que symptoms questionnaire checklist. It's 25 questions. It all fits on a single page. It's a checklist. Patients can complete it in a few minutes or less, and a provider can glance at it and um, be able to tell which uh, symptom cluster is mo most likely or not giving problems. And I guess the key point here is it, how it's very important to not only identify but attempt to treat some of these sleep disorders. Just kind of clarify that for why is that so important. Right. Well, I think what we found, um, what the sleep science community has found, is that if you treat a sleep disorder, many of the other comorbidities uh, also respond positively, even if those are not treated. Things like anxiety and depression, obesity, uh, cardiovascular disease. For sure, blood pressure control gets better if you treat um, a sleep disorder. Uh, diabetic uh, blood sugar control, definitely much better glycemic control if you treat the sleep disorder. So it sounds to me that this really is a crucial part, or should be, I mean, assessing someone's sleep, knowing what could be going on, is really a crucial part of what should be part of an overall physical exam. Well, that's my belief, yes. I, I think that... If you're saying they really... It, it, they, this, a disorder of this kind could be at the source of all of these kinds of complex medical comorbidities. Right, right. They're, we know they're associated. We don't know cause and effect, if it's chicken egg, but for sure if you treat one, you help the other. Uh, I think... Probably the easiest one to think about is depression and sleep. That was one of the earliest um, one uh, comorbidities that was associated with sleep. It used to be thought that sleep was a symptom of depression, but all of the diagnostic manuals were rewritten, and sleep disorders are standalone that should be treated regardless of whether you treat the co-occurring condition. So there is this kind of halo effect if yes. you do treat the sleep disorder, that there can be a lot of kind of bang for your buck, so to speak. Exactly. So our primary care, I mean, are you making your screening tool available? And are there these kinds of things that are available in a, on a large scale basis for primary care providers? Um, well, we're in the process of validating this 25 item questionnaire. Um, it is available free for use clinic. For clini clinicians, I've got it up on a website, and um, but we're in the process of validating it in a large population. And even in a very quick visit, it sounds to me like if a patient has the opportunity in the waiting room or what have you to fill the questionnaire out, at least it's a beginning to look at what the potential issues are and then maybe have a discussion and go from there. Right, and if they took that 
questionnaire to a sleep specialist. Perhaps if they were referred out, I think a sleep specialist would really be able to do a lot with that. You know, a lot of times people always ask the question, when we talk about sleep or sleep disorders, you know, what is the ideal sleep pattern? And what is the amount of sleep really needed? And, and in just a little bit of time we have left, just give us an overview in terms of, you know, the life cycle. I mean, people say often as you get older, you know, the elderly need less sleep. I'm not sure that's actually true. Maybe they just don't sleep as much, but just give us a quick overview. Um, the best place to look for this information is on the National Sleep Foundation website. That They just released recommendations for how much sleep you should get based on your age. And also achieving appropriate amounts of sleep is, is a goal in the Healthy People 2020. So you can look there as well to find that out. But isn't it true that teenagers seem to need more sleep? Teenagers need more sleep, and their circadian cycle is definitely shifted later. Uh, so uh, the idea of the teenagers getting up and going to school earlier than their younger siblings um, really doesn't jive for the sleep scientists. Really, there needs to be some readjustment or take a, a, a closer look yeah. at all of that. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming in. It's very, very interesting. Um, it's a very interesting field and obviously has potential ramifications for overall good health. So thanks again. My guest has been Dr. Karen Klingman. She's Associate Professor of Nursing at Upstate Medical University who specializes in sleep disorder screening. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Next up, a look at the effects of rising opioid abuse. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, while death rates are falling for blacks and Hispanics in middle age, whites are dying prematurely in growing numbers, particularly white women. Since the turn of this century, death rates have risen for white women in midlife. One reason, a big increase in overdoses, primarily from opioids, but also from anti-anxiety drugs, which are often prescribed in tandem. Here with more on all of this is, is Gina Marafa. She's a clinical toxicologist with Upstate's New York Poison Center. Welcome, Gina. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So white middle-aged women are overdosing on opioids and other drugs. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you know about that. So this has been a trend that's been increasing over the past several years. Um, and it's scary when you look at the statistics of who's actually dying. What we know, there's a few things that we know for sure. Um, the first thing that we know for sure is that poisoning deaths are the leading cause of unintentional deaths in this country right now, wow. um, which is really scary when you put that into perspective comparatively to other causes of death. Um, and we know a lot of what we're seeing is that when you say overdose, it's really the unintentional overdose. So it's people or patients who are prescribed or abusing opioids, usually with some type of drug like a benzodiazepine, like Valium or Xanax, and they're taking them together. And at some point, they're increasing their dose for whatever reason. Um, and then 
they die. And so they take what they think is their regular dose. They either add a second drug in with that. So whether it be a benzodiazepine or alcohol, and then the next morning they're found um, dead in bed. What's the mechanism for how these drugs actually do that though? So both, so when you think about opioids or narcotic drugs, so things like oxycodone or hydrocodone or even heroin, they work for pain for sure. Um, and then, but they also do things where they make you very sleepy to as severe as coma. And then they also slow your respiratory rate down to the point where you stop breathing. Um, and then when you add other things that work very similarly, Benzodiazepines, for example, they make you either anywhere from sleepy to a coma, and they slow your respiratory rate, very similar to alcohol. And when you combine one or more things that all have that end result of slowing your respiratory rate, you stop breathing. So, and that's really what's resulting in all of these people dying. That's incredible. So basically, is there a kind of um, augmentative effect? In other words, if you take the opioid, that alone is going to slow your breathing, and then you add on the benzo, basically that makes it even doubly bad. Exactly, exactly. So opioids in and of themselves can make you stop breathing, but then when you add a benzo or add alcohol or other drugs that are central nervous system depressants, the end result can be catastrophic. So let me take a step to the side for a minute mm -hmm. and help us understand what exactly currently is the problem, both locally and nationally, with opioid abuse? What's going on? So we know that we are in an epidemic and a public health threat with opioid-addicted patients and opioid abuse. Um, this is We see this in Onondaga County. We see this in the 54 counties that the Poison Center covers, and we see this nationally. Um, this has been an ongoing upward trend for the past several years. Um, it largely probably started when opioid narcotics or analgesics were prescribed and increased, their, increased the number of prescriptions. For several years, the number one or the top prescription dispensed in this country was hydrocodone. Wow. Um, and so we, we have now seen a whole group of people that have now become addicted, dependent on opioids. And as we know, there's been a lot of legislation to try to combat that and to try to really fix the problem. Things like prescription monitoring programs like iStop in New York State. Um, but it's still, because of these programs, which are hugely beneficial, we still have a, a great population of people that are addicted to opioids. So let me take you back for a second. Mm -hmm. So basically, I understand that at one point, and probably was around the 1970s, there was a shift in the medical thinking in terms of, you know, in a way coming from perhaps a humanitarian position of people should not suffer mm -hmm. from pain. And so there was this movement toward more liberally or liberalizing the the um, di the dispensing of drugs, opioid type drugs, but it seems like it's become more uh, intensified, as you said, in the last several years in terms of people being hooked on these drugs. Mm -hmm. So, and what, give us kind of a feeling for what a natural evolution would be. So, someone injures their back, or they have, in some cases, even a tooth extracted. Mm -hmm and they're given these opioids, who is going to be the person, for example, who's going to become addicted and why, would you say? So that's a, you make a great point about thinking about 
who's who's using these drugs. Really in the 1990s, pain became the fifth vital sign. And it was really something that a lot of people paid close attention to. And the question of no pain is acceptable. And that's probably really where we got into trouble with this. And it's really not, a little pain is good. Um, and what we've seen now is that people will come to the hospital, they'll go to the dentist and they get prescriptions for 30 or 60 pills for a narcotic pain reliever. Um, and in reality, most people probably only need an opioid for a very short period of time. And actually, opioids only have been proven to work for acute pain. So the first day, two, three days after a painful injury. And there's new data coming out showing that even a teenager, when they get their first prescription of an opioid, even if it is for a painful procedure, they, have, they are at higher risk for developing addiction, independence, intolerance. So you're right. I think it's we all got into that sense of that everyone needed opioids and large quantities of opioids, and now we're in this epidemic where there's a large number of people that are addicted to opioids. But in fact, it must have been at some point that the healthcare world was complicit in renewing these prescriptions over time, long after the offending problem except in cases of chronic pain. And I think that's probably where you run into issues, where somebody has a chronic back problem that, that is not reparable or they, they're avoiding surgery or maybe surgery is not the answer. Exactly. And actually, when you think about chronic pain, and chronic low back pain is one of the more common reasons that people are on long-term narcotics for. And that really is a difficult scenario. People are in pain. Um, and this is, I think, one of the reasons and one of the groups of people that are now dependent and addicted to opioids. The interesting issue is once you're on opioids for a couple of weeks, they actually make your pain worse. So now these people truly are in pain. They truly have increased sensitivity to pain and it's like this vicious cycle and then they need increasing doses of their opioids and to treat their pain um, and then it really runs into this vicious cycle and this is why we're seeing people dying now. If you're just joining us you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air I'm Linda Cohen along with clinical toxicologist Gina Marafa we're talking about drug overdoses with opioids, but also the use of multiple drugs. So I want to take you back now to what we started talking about, which were this whole demographic of white middle-aged women who are using multiple drugs. Why is that happening? I mean, is it a result of menopause, access to the drugs, and maybe ignorance in terms of this whole idea of the interaction of these two types of drugs? I think it might be multifactorial and all of the comments that you made might very well be accurate. It's hard to say exactly why. I do think that for a long time, the people used to think that drug addicts were a certain group of people um, and that it didn't cross socioeconomic statuses. And we know that that's no longer true. Um, addiction and dependence cross across the board, whether you're teenagers, whether you're middle-aged, whether you're wealthy, whether you're not. Um, and I think that what we're seeing now is just a culmination of a lot of people who are, for whatever reason, were put on an opioid for a medical purpose and now are in this conundrum of needing more opioids. And then you throw in other drugs on top of that and they're they're dying. And it's usually unintentional deaths. This is not suicide deaths that you're talking about. This is people that are taking what they perceive as 
a therapeutic quote unquote dose of their medicine. Yeah, and, and I want to talk a little bit about how the government is trying to intervene and how the healthcare system is trying to intervene at this point. But in terms of white middle-aged women, I mean, in terms of what I I came across a very interesting fact. This whole idea of with perimenopause and menopause, people are developing more anxiety for a period of time, sleep loss, you know, a loss of sex drive, whatever. And they turn to some of these drugs, not so much even the opioids, but the benzos and the anti-anxiety drugs, and they're already on an opioid. And maybe that's in some way responsible for the fact that these women unknowingly may baby basically create a very uh, dangerous situation for themselves. Agree completely. And I think that's really what we're seeing is that when you add a benzodiazepine to someone who's taking an opioid, their risk of dying goes up. And I think that that's exactly this patient population. And also when they stopped hormone replacement for these women, exactly at one mm -hmm. time that was something that was used as an opportunity to help reduce some of these mm -hmm. other symptoms. Now those have been taken away. The other fact that I wanted your opinion on is what role do you think it plays in the terms of people's psyche or opinion of all of this that the drugs are prescription drugs as opposed to street drugs or um, illicitly garnered drugs in some way? I mean, I does, think, it give, does it give credibility to the, its use somehow? I think it absolutely does, right? If your doctor's prescribing you a medication, then there's a medical use for that. Um, and you feel better about that. Um, and there is probably some truth in that, but for what we do know is that any even prescribed medications, you know, the higher the dose, the more likely it is to cause toxicity or be a poison. Um, so I do think that. We've also seen this shift with prescription opioids now that their people are being a little bit more proactive of not starting people on opioids um, and or having decreased availability of opioids. And now we've seen this entire shift where we have a whole group of people that are opioid addicts and now they're turning to things like heroin. And it's always been that heroin were those other people. And now heroin is across the board, people in our communities. In the suburbs. Exactly. It's in our communities, it's in our families, and it's because they're seeking an alternative. So yes, I think that prescription opioids, people think that they're quote unquote safe and that they're medically prescribed and therefore they don't have a dependence or addiction to them because they have pain. Um, and now that's that whole paradigm shift to now why people are using heroin, I think that the increased amount of heroin use is directly related to the prescription opioid epidemic that we face. So more, as you mentioned earlier, you mentioned the I-STOP program. That's a New York mm -hmm. State program. But the point is the government has begun to intervene, recognizing the dangers of these drugs and trying to limit or at least make prescribers extremely accountable and to keep track of the people who might be drug shopping or doctor shopping mm -hmm. so they could continue. So do you think that's been effective? I, I do. I think I applaud the government for, for doing these type of programs and recognizing that there's a problem. So I do think that it's effective. I think that it's a reasonable approach. The only, the biggest problem with that is we tended to forget that there are now a whole group of people that were already dependent and addicted and other resources like 
programs and recovery, those didn't increase, right? So now we have, so for someone newly getting started on opioids, it's probably a really good thing and we're proactive. Um, but there's this whole generation of people that are dependent on opioids. And so, and we didn't face those other issues of, of treating their addiction. So I guess the bottom line is, first of all, very briefly, because I don't want to run out of time, what is withdrawal like? And can people beat this on their own? And if not, what options are there? Well, so there's, so dr opioid withdrawal is they feel like they have the flu. They feel generally awful. Um, people describe it as the worst time of their life. So, which is why it makes people very difficult to come off of their drugs. Certainly programs, um, there's a lot of programs locally um, that have opioid programs as well as there are some medications sometimes that people can be used to help their withdrawal and to maintain their um, to maintain their essentially their life without an addicting opioid um, and it all depends right there's a lot of resources um, but certainly the first step is admitting a problem and seeking out help is the most important thing but the other thing you said in very little bit of time now is that the government or there need to be made more resources available for these people and not just cut off the supply. There absolutely needs to be more resources. Thank you so much. My guest has been Gina Maroff, a clinical toxicologist with Upstate's New York Poison Center. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. For those of us who wonder about the professional life of a nurse, Emily Weston, an ICU nurse and a writer, gives us a gritty, funny, and tender glimpse in her story, The Hero. Here is just an excerpt. The Hero, Emily Weston. David is 38 years old. He has been a nurse long enough that almost nothing makes him gag anymore, but not long enough that he is annoyed if he misses lunch because of a cardiac arrest. In his mind, full of logic and order and straight lines, this is a not very precise measurement, but he understands that if he reaches the point where he's doing CPR and wishing the patient could have waited until after he ate, then he's been a nurse for a very long time. On an average day, doing charge on A6, David answers 32 phone calls, starts seven IVs, and corrects four mistakes made by new nurses. He hangs eight new bags of IV fluid, questions 15 new MD orders, discharges four patients, and admits five new ones. He helps eight people to the bathroom, cleans up six dirty beds, and helps other nurses and techs lift or reposition a total of one ton of human flesh. He clocks between three and seven miles on his Fitbit. When he gets home at night, he lays on the couch and stares at the ceiling. Some days, A6 is more work than the Air Force. He likes it, though. Likes that he knows the answers. He can assist and correct. Likes the way illness and disability don't faze him anymore because there's something he can do. And he likes the way he moves in a place where walking down the hall is a feat and so many are hampered by stiff knees, disease, and extra weight, he walks easily for hours, his body still lean and strong from years in the service, a lodestone of order and sanity in his cluttered and chaotic environment. 
Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we learn the latest information about spine care. Plus, a look at the current generation of drugs used to treat psychosis today. And what happens next when you find a breast mask? If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.